morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Dominic Lim, who recently appeared at the Bookmarks Festival and whose novel All the Right Notes was featured on our romance panel. Dominic, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. Um, so it's good to have you. I feel like have you back because you were in the house not not too long ago uh, right. for our author's dinner. Um, and one of the things I, you know, was thinking about as I read this book is the fact that when I was a young man, you know, like maybe your age, uh, the you know, queer fiction was something that was published by small houses and sold in little bookstores that mostly catered to the LGBTQ community. Um, and now that's not the case anymore. Now you can find this in, in any good bookstore, but sometimes in a separate section. And I wonder if you could just sort of talk about the, the place of queer fiction in the marketplace and also this idea of like, should it, should it be segregated or should it just be with fiction? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing for me growing up. I, um, I was always trying to find great gay stories, great queer stories, male, male romances. And yeah, they were, like you said, in a separate part of the bookstore. Sometimes I'd have to go to a specifically gay bookstore. That's often what I did, actually. Um, or, you know, maybe they'd have a small section in Barnes & Noble or what have you. But it's been so much better recently, in the past couple of years, um, and in particular in romance. And in romance, actually, it's very recent that male male romances um, are being written by men. Um, they have been before, uh, but it the great majority of them in the past have been written by by women and usually straight women. So the fact that there are so many new gay male authors writing gay male romances is something that's very important to me, and I, and I'm very proud of being that part of that that little part of the movement as well yeah. um in, in uh not just the greater you know proliferation of of game gay literature queer literature yeah. yeah you begin this novel with something that i'm not sure i've ever seen before i see it on tv shows and on movies all the time okay. but i'm not sure i've ever seen it in a novel and that is you begin with a with a, essentially a content warning um why, why did you choose to to do this and do you think this is something like we should be thinking about adopting industry-wide because I, I do have readers who sometimes say, well, I got halfway through your novel and then something happened that, that really yeah. put me off, you know? Yeah, I know there's, there's, there's arguments to both sides. I, I think it's fair. It's getting to be fairly common now in, in specific genres like romance and especially young adult uh, to have a content warning. And I I've talked about other authors. I talked with other authors about this because my first you know, my first thing was, you know, I don't want to spoil anything for the reader. I want them to sort of be along for the ride, you know, and, and if they have a gut reaction to something, let them have a gut reaction to something, right? 
But um, of, uh, an author friend of mine, Beth Weingartner, said it this way, you know, think of it as sort of a, an allergy warning. Like if you're, if, you're, if you're allergic to peanuts, put it on the package because you don't want someone to have such an adverse reaction that they, they get sick. And there are some things these days, I think, that are, are really triggering to people that they really appreciate being warned uh, in advance of, especially things like assault and abuse and, and those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you were in Winston-Salem recently for the Bookmarks Festival, and, and I don't think I'm giving away any secrets here because you talked about this on the panel, but you and Julie Soto and Abby Jimenez apparently went to one of our local watering holes and did <laughs> karaoke. Uh, and, and that brings us to something that's, that's going to be central to this book as we as we start to talk about the book in, in just a minute. Um, and that is your background in in music. Talk to us a little bit about your background as a as a musician, as a performer, um, your background in theater and how all of that led to becoming a writer. Yeah, my my background actually is not in writing. I am. a. This is my debut uh, novel. I am. An, I'm a new writer. I really only started writing uh, you know, maybe about 10 years ago, just as a hobby, really, and didn't really get too serious about it until about maybe 2017. Because before that, I was, as you said, a, a musician. I um, I went to Oberlin College and Conservatory of Music. Uh, I I went there for, for vocal performance, but I, I didn't actually finish my degree. I did end up later finishing, getting a master's degree in early music at Indiana University. Um, in their early music program, which is Baroque and, and, and uh, Renaissance music. That's because at the time I was studying to be a countertenor, um, an operatic countertenor. So yeah, if you look me up on YouTube, you'll find me singing a, a countertenor aria to Giulio Cesare. Uh, that's, a, that's a past life. Um, but before that, I was actually a musical theater actor working in New York City. So all of these things kind of found their way into my book because my book I like to say is essentially a musical in a novel form it's sort of how I conceived it in a way uh, there's a song that winds its way through the book it's sort of like the thematic song called a part I play um, it has you know duets and the 11 o'clock number and the big you know choral finale so I wanted to I think I was pretty conscious of the fact that my first book would definitely be about my I mean I write what you know right so I know a lot about music I know a lot about theater and a lot of these characters are very much inspired by the people that I've I've worked with and collaborated with over the years and the and the places too like the piano bar and yeah. the school etc I could so see this book as a musical that would be great <laughs> I would I would line up the buy yeah your lips to God's ear please <laughs> Well, okay. So tell us, tell us just a little bit about all the right notes, and and in particular about the two main characters, um, Quito and and Emmett. Yeah, sure. All the right notes. It's um, it's a it's it's a um, second chance romance, and it's it it's a little different in that it takes place in two different timelines. The 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 there's a present time timeline, and a past timeline that takes place in the in the nineties. Uh, which which kind of makes it a little crossover YA-ish, actually, because they're they're both in high school. These two characters, Quito Cruz, who is a Filipino pianist and composer, is uh, the son of the high school choir director, uh, Mr. Cruz. And 
this new guy, Emmett Aoki, who's like the pretty boy jock, joins the choir and they develop this friendship. Well, the first kind of frenemies and then they become friends and then maybe something more. Uh, and then they don't talk to each other for about 20 years until they meet in the present time when Kito is a pianist uh, and living in New York and is a failed composer. And Emmett is now a famous Hollywood actor. So uh, Kito's dad has asked him to put, asked his son to help him put on a concert because he's retiring from the high school and he's asked Kito to reach out to Emmett to perform in it and he thinks that his son has been in contact with him all this time thinking they've been best friends the whole time but uh, they haven't so they have to sort of reestablish that connection and see what happens. You, you mentioned this a minute ago but I think who we are as people inevitably ends up in our writing, whether we're musicians or book collectors or straight or gay or black or white, it's gonna, it's gonna show up sooner or later. Tell us about the, the sort of cultural and ethnic background of both yourself and, and, and then how it, I mean, in such beautiful ways works in, into this novel. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I think in a, a, a I'll start in a, a sort of a, a broad term, a broad like view of the book that it was very important to me to sort of uh, represent the the people around me and in my life. And I and in my life, there are so many uh, queer people, trans people, people of color, um, of course, Filipinos. So I wanted that reflected in the book and in the book, the the vast, I think, I can't even think of one that's not. Every character is either queer or a person of color uh, and they're usually both. So that that was really important to me because represent, representation is very near to my heart. So, and in terms of the, the character, I, it, it's a, I have a commitment to writing Filipino characters and in particular Filipino queer characters. So um, he, he, Kito and his dad are central to the book almost as much as Kito's relationship to Emmett. Yeah. And um, I wanted to present um, a picture of their life at home uh, and then the way that they cook and talk to each other um, because I, there a lot, not a lot of people are, are familiar with Filipino culture and um, I think a lot of Filipino literature in the past has been, uh, um, and, and this is not a mistake, has been really geared towards Filipino readers. And this book, uh, though it is, it's not specifically, you know, it's, it's geared towards a wide audience. And it, it was important to me to write a book that I knew would get into the hands of very, a lot of different kinds of people and to, to give them that, that little picture of what it's like to be Filipino American. Yeah, I think you did a great job of exactly what you said and making it for a wider audience of having us be able to sort of feel like we're participating in this culture without being confused by it. Like you, you serve as a good kind of translator, if you will, um, for the for the broader reader. Um, the, this book, you sort of mentioned this, it starts out um, in a high school chorus class. This is something that many of us are very familiar with. Yes. Certainly, uh, remember fondly from my own past. Um, but I went to a all boys school in the 1970s and so the mm -hmm. idea of a gay student coming out was it was an impossibility sure at that, yeah. at that time and in that in that environment um which is really sad to me because i now know that a lot of a lot of my good friends were gay and i didn't want yeah. able to express it at the time um but but i'm wondering like what was as you started to work in this what was your high school experience like and and how do you think 
queer kids in general fare in that environment in, in this day and age, as opposed to what it was like, you know, when, when I was younger? Yeah, I, I really, I really love that question. I, I certainly today it's a lot better. Well, in the very now recently, it's starting to dip back a little bit, but it's certainly, <laughs> it's certainly gotten a lot better in the past couple of years. Um, for me, it's interesting because I really wanted, to, it's a romance, first of all. So, and I, it was important to me to write a book that was full of joy. And I didn't want to write a queer story that was focused. I, I listened recently to your podcast with um, Paul Rudnick, and I really appreciated what he said too about writing his book is that it, it's, it, it, we need happy stories, you know, we need happy endings, we need joy, we need to not center always our stories around trauma or oppression or abuse. So that was important to me. And the way that it intersects with my life is that I came out at a very early age uh, to myself, probably like, I don't know, fourth grade, and then uh, to my best friend in seventh grade, and then probably to everyone else in ninth grade. So this was the late 80s. Um, uh, I did go to school in the Bay Area, so that helped. Yeah. But uh, I was very lucky because that entire high school was so, so in fact, it's just a weird phenomenon that when I came out, I became more popular. Uh, like the like the head cheerleader certainly suddenly wanted to be my best friend and yeah, yeah. I, I don't know it, it was just it was hitting it I think just the right time when people were like oh it's kind of cool to be gay yeah, yeah. I guess have a gay best friend or whatever so my experience was actually quite nice so uh, it ref it's kind of reflected in this book as well yeah yeah um, yeah so I I, I want to dive down into um, into Keto's part-time job uh, of playing at this piano bar that you call Broadway Baby, but yes. it sure sounds to me a lot like Marie's Crisis. Oh yeah, which is a which is a bar where I actually got to play a few songs back in the early '80s when somebody took a break. Still the highlight of my yes. piano playing career. You played uh, Godspell, didn't you? Uh, was it I think I probably played something from Godspell, maybe Pippin. <laughs> I can't remember exactly. Pippin, Pippin, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was a it was a great time. Um, um, but I but I want to talk about about music and about singing in particular because you did this great description of one of the piano bar patrons and mm. you write that she was focusing on her own singing and not on the song itself. Mm -hmm. That really resonated for me as a as a sometime singer. Um, and, and I wondered if you could kind of for for our listeners who maybe are less musical, if you kind of dive into that difference between between focusing on yourself and focusing on the song as a performer. Yeah, sure. And um, yeah, I, you know, I was, I was classically trained, I went to a conservatory of music. And um, I think, in particular, classical singers run into this a lot, where they, they focus so much on the sound production and the technique, that they lose sight of the text. And certainly, uh, you know, devil's advocate, it is a lot harder to focus on the text when it's in a foreign language, right? So, or when it's an art, you know, archaic text. But when you sing musical theater, when you stand a new repertoire, you know, I, I don't think you have an excuse. You know what you're singing about. You have, you, you, you need to be able to make that connection. And it's when I was growing, when I was, you know, a young singer in my 20s and things, I did often make that mistake of, just focusing on how I sounded. Did it sound pretty? Did it sound, 
you know, thrilling? Did I hit those high notes? And it's really much less important about that. So many of our best singers in history did not have the best voices, right? You know, I, I, I uh, you, you, say what you will, but I don't think Judy Garland had the best voice. I don't, I don't think, oh my gosh, I might get crucified for this, but I don't <laughs> think Maria Callas had the best voice, but it was really about the way they interpreted the text. Mm -hmm. It's so much more important, right? Because that's the way you feel the music is, is through the text, with a singer at least. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think as I was listening to you, I'm thinking like we do this in writing too. We there are writers oh, yeah. who, who lose track of telling the story totally. because they're so caught up in crafting the perfect sentence or the perfect <laughs> paragraph. Yeah, um, and, and it's you know it's about telling the story, um, and and you know also think about the way you describe Emmett as a singer. You know, not not particularly trained, mm -hmm. you know, maybe not the best voice, but he has that ability to to tell the story and to, to connect to the text, you know, yeah. a way that some yeah, others yeah. don't. You, the way you describe the art of an accompaniment and, and Quito spends a lot of time, he's, he's the accompanist for his dad's uh, high school choir when he's in junior high still, he's already, you know, working as a, as an accompanist. Um, yeah. But the way you describe that art is it's really lyrical and you portray accompaniment as this sort of metaphor for relate the relationships in the book. Mm -hmm. um, talk to our listeners a little bit about the art of accompaniment and not how it's not just playing the piano and, and the ways you kind of incorporated that art into the novel. Yeah, I, I my own piano schools are are pretty limited, so I wouldn't call myself, you know, a really good accompanist. But uh, I do have many friends who are. My brother is. Um, some of my best friends are. And when we collaborate. It is that same kind of feeling that I get uh, uh, in a choir or on stage with a, a great partner, a great scene partner, but in particularly choir uh, with a good accompanist, you almost, you, 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 there is this invisible line between you where you start to anticipate each other's breaths and where you're going to come in and whether when you know you're going to crescendo and when you're not you can just feel it um with them uh and it's the same way in choir when when you're in a really good choir you're almost sometimes not even aware if the sound you're hearing is coming from you or the person next to you i mean that is an incredible feeling right uh and that is what it's kind of like to be in a great relationship uh, when you are so close to someone, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship or um, a familial relationship, when you know each other so well that you know what the next word is going to be out of their mouth, right? You know what the reaction is going to be to something that you say or to something that you both see. I think that's magic. And I think it's so easy to put music and romance together, at least for me. So yeah. I mean, I somebody asked me, I said, well, is this, a, is this a novel about music or is it a novel about romance? And I said, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because <it>, <laughs> you just you. can't pull the two apart, in, in, no. which, I, which yeah. I love. And I love your description of Quito's musical childhood, the, 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 the way that music was so much a part of his, his household growing up. And of course, his father is the, is, is the choir director. So he's, you know, in, in music, his career, his mother is a soloist. Um, to talk a little bit about music in your childhood and just and the importance of music beyond the itsy bitsy spider for for children as they develop. 
Yeah, my my own parents were were not musicians. That that's that's definitely fiction, but um, but they loved music and it was always on. Mm-hmm. They had records on. They, my mom especially, sang all the time around the house, and uh, she got me involved in music at a very early age. I, I think that's just part. That's that's. That's part of Asian culture. That's part of, part of Filipino culture is to get your kids involved in music, whether it's violin or piano. And I remember the first gift, one of the first gifts she ever gave me was this multicolored metal xylophone, you know, those Fisher Price things. Oh, yeah. And I had, I had that, I had that xylophone iron. I, I remember picking out the notes to songs on the radio or whatever my mom was listening to. And my mom would say, you know, that's, that's an actual time. I thought that everyone could do that, but I, it, it's not, it's, you know, not everyone can. So then she put me into piano classes and, and in choir and, uh, you know, and then started playing instruments. You know, they encouraged me to be in band. I was in band. I played saxophone. I played piano. I played bassoon in, 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 um, in band. So, they knew that that was always going to be a part of my life because I, from the very beginning, I was already singing. So they, they thought it was just fine for me to also uh, do these other things. Um, they didn't really know what, what direction I was going and I didn't know what direction I was going to go into either. So yeah, it, it's been there um, because they, they really supported it. Yeah. And all the, all of my siblings are musicians in some form or another. My, Brother Joe is a music teacher. He's he's a piano teacher and a choir teacher. My other brother is a songwriter, and my sister doesn't do it as much, but she used to be a jazz musician. The, one of the things I find that I struggle against sometimes, and I'm thinking about in particular all of your knowledge about music and how you bring it to this novel, is this delicate balance between sort of opening a curtain on a topic that maybe the reader doesn't know much, as much about mm-hmm. as you do, and, yeah. and introducing them to that. And then going overboard and having the whole novel just be one long look at all the things I know about rare books or all the things yeah. I know about music. Um, can, can you talk about that that balancing act and how you you use your passion to undergird the story without allowing it to obscure the story? Yeah, I that that is something that was definitely in the back of my head that this was a, a book about music. I think one of the saving graces was that so much of it was centered around uh, popular music, particularly musical theater. And I think that most people who pick up this book have some sort of fondness or background in musical theater. There are a lot of mentions of songs from specific shows and things like that. Uh, But I do, I know that there are passages where I I go into what music might be for someone who is uh, like a musical prodigy, for example, Uh, the way that Quito sort of sees music or experience music in a synesthetic way. Um, and that is not that is not my experience. <laughs> That's definitely from going to school with a lot of like basically geniuses. Yeah. You know, I mean my first boyfriend was uh he was I mean he could he he could literally open up an orchestral score and know what it sounds like just by like looking at it. I mean, right? He could, he's the kind of guy that uh, all he had to do was hear a song once and he could play it on the piano. So, and and in talking to these people as I was growing up and, and becoming a musician myself, the way that they would describe what 
what perfect pitch feels like to them. It's very synesthetic. It, it you know, pitches to them feel or look a certain way. Um, so these are the things I picked up from from other people there, not necessarily myself. But I, I mean, I was I, I've had that privilege of getting to know so many incredibly musicians that I have that background. So you, as you mentioned before, these the chapters in this book alternate in time between the time Quito is in high school and then about 20 or so years later in adulthood. And yeah. I've read a lot of split time novels. I've written some split time novels. Um, but as as you said, I don't see that technique as often in in the romance genre. But I felt like it worked really well for this book. Why did why did you think it was particularly well suited for the story that you're telling here in All the Right Notes? Yeah, it, it kind of came out of stubbornness, to be honest. <laughs> I know that everyone tells you don't have too much backstory, don't have too much backstory, put it in judiciously, blah, blah, blah. And as I was writing, the because it started out a current day story and I had so much backstory, I was like, but the backstory is just so good. Like yeah. people are going to want to see <laughs> like I And I kept like, I kept trying to edit it down and it just wouldn't edit down. And I thought, you know what the heck with it? I'm just going to alternate and see what it looks like. And so I had to approach it really carefully because the, they both of the, the timelines had to have their own narrative arcs. And in particularly, because I was going to go past present, they had to have like joins, like each chapter sort of had to hand off to the next one. So I that was I needed to do that in order to not jar the reader cuz I think sometimes when you read something that is not quite successful with different timelines uh you feel a little cheated in a way because you're you're wanting to keep going in one and all of a sudden you're in another you're like no I don't like the story as much so uh it was important to me to have both stories be compelling and also to not feel as if you're being whipped across time every time yeah, yeah i remember working on my first novel you know my one of the things my editor said was let's spend a little bit longer in each time frame you know oh yeah go back but yeah I was, I was very aware of that idea of of having those little links between the time frames as, so that so that it doesn't feel even though you you do get two for the price of one uh -huh. It doesn't feel like two separate novels. It feel they feel connected. Connect. They, that's it. Yeah, the like, connections. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, as you said, Quito is kind of a failed composer. When we meet him, he had he had been composing as um, as a young man, and then he has some experiences that leave him with some trauma, and ends up not feeling as creative. Um, and that's one of the ways that that those that those two time periods are tied together. Is is his relationship with composing? Without yeah. giving too much away, can you can you tell us a, a few of the other ways that you you tie those two lines together? Yeah, I'm trying to think of <laughs> I'm trying to think of how <laughs> I did it. <laughs> yeah, I think um, one of the things that I I did uh, uh, several times in the book is that in the present you see Quito reacting in a certain way to something that Emmett does. Uh, like he leaves abruptly in the middle of a conversation or he sort of, or he has a fear about something that Emmett has done and, and interprets it in a certain way. Um, and I think, uh, and then, so what I do is then I, I, I don't, I don't make the reader wait too long, you know, in the next chapter, you see what happens in the past to make Quito act that way. 
you know, he leaves the, he leaves the bar because in the past, something similar happened, you know, or et, et cetera. So yeah, I don't want to give too much away. Um, but yeah, also, I think I also connect them. Um, how else have I, how else I, that <laughs> it's funny when you ask questions about people's books and <laughs> I'm, I'm working on the second book now. So <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Trying to, trying to answer questions about a book you wrote three years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. It's these are great questions. I think those are the, the main the main ways. Yeah. yeah. Well, we all know, and we talked about this in the panel some at, at Bookmarks, that that the romance genre depends upon certain tropes and certain formulas. But also part of the fun is both conforming to those formulas and and also defying them at the same time. Yeah. Can, can you talk about some ways in which you sort of stuck with the traditional romance structures and other ways in which you maybe subverted the, the expectations of the reader? Yeah, I, I love this question because I, I actually, I didn't really, I didn't actually know I wrote a romance until it was done, <laughs> <laughs> until I started querying. <laughs> so I, um, yeah, I, I, I actually, I, I, this past summer, I, I, um, I had drinks in, in New York City with uh, Sid Carger, who also yeah. wrote a queer rom-com this year, Best Man. And he tells the story about how he didn't even know what tropes were until the first panel that he did. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, I mean, I didn't find out that late, but I found out pretty late. I didn't even know what tropes were when I was writing them. In fact, Kirkus reviews said I put too many in my book. <laughs> Slightly overstuffed is what. <laughs> um, so, uh, which is fine. That's I, I think it's because uh, my my own experience with romance really comes more from movies uh my you know my favorite movie of all time is still when harry met sally so um yeah i i, I took it from there and i didn't know what tropes were i think my own book has something like six or seven in it i i, I counted them um so i i i didn't really subvert any tropes as i was writing because i didn't even know what they were <laughs> they just kind of ended up in my book. But I think that's, I mean, that's interesting because what that shows is that, the, you know, these tropes were not made up by some romance panel. Right. They are, they are deep seated ways that human beings tell stories. Yes. That, that have been tested over thousands of years and that work, you know? Yeah. And so even if we don't know, if we don't have the words to explain them, it's still, there's still sort of a naturalness to, to tell stories in certain ways. Um, yeah. Kito and Emmett both deal with sort of the weight of parental expectations. Mm -hmm. um, can you can you talk a little bit about the the differing relationships that these these two characters have with with their parents and how that that shapes them as young men? Yeah, I it, that's been a, a big topic for me personally, um, both being Filipino and 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 gay and those sort of expectations of what your parents have for you in terms of your career, but also, uh, you know, kids getting married. So, and I think they're reflected in the characters that I wrote in this story. I think that Emmett is actually closer to my own experience in a way because um, Emmett's, you know, dad really expected him to excel, to, to be the star athlete, to, you know, get straight A's. Uh, and then Emmett, you know, I think it's a different expectation that 
Kito's dad had for uh, for Kito uh, that as a musician, I think Mr. Cruz just wanted for his son to be as fulfilled as possible as a musician, um, which is something that I'm, I may have wished that my parents had for me, but I don't blame them for not having that because they weren't musicians. They don't, they don't really know. They don't quite understand what it's like to have a fulfilling musical career. Um, success for them, as it is for most people, of my parents' generation is really measured in, in uh, financial security, right? And most musicians and actors are not financially secure. So, but Kito's dad really just wants him to be as fulfilled as possible um, and to, to be a, a successful composer. But he also has another, well, yeah, he also has, I don't wanna to give too much away, but he also wants him to be fulfilled in another way. And, 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 and we find out that, Kito's dad has been supporting him in the background for a very long time about that. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to now address what I would call the white rabbit in the room. Um, okay. So you, you've been to, you've been to my house. You've seen yes. all my Alice in Wonderland stuff, <laughs> but you didn't tell me there was a big Alice in Wonderland element in your novel, which I had the great <laughs> joy of stumbling across when I got Bet. to it. Um, so, so tell us a, a little bit about this, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about about Kito's roommate and how they are performing in this show called Wonderland, spelled O N E dash Durland, um, and, and and why you, why you wanted Alice to be sort of part of this um, this novel? Yeah, there's there's a lot there. Let me just talk yeah. a little bit about um, Ujima. Yeah, uh, Ujima yeah. is. I, I feel like if I took a poll, Ujima is probably most people's favorite character in the book yeah. and they are the they are Kito's best friend and roommate and Ujima is a black non-binary trans uh, and works as a drag queen and they're very much based off of uh, uh, two really one person in my life that that was very similar to that to Ujima um, but yeah so I wanted to put this show in the book uh, and uh it was sort of a comedic set piece i i wanted it to be a show that people would go that's not a good show you know <laughs> like so in my head what i wanted to do was to make it off broadway make it interactive because so many people do not like interactive theater although i have myself been my only off broadway show was an interactive show that's sort of what i based on and um I wanted it to be a show. I wanted it to be a jukebox show because people make fun of jukebox shows all the time, right? They're mostly trash, let's face it. <laughs> so uh, what I did was I wrote a show based on Britney Spears. And I, as soon as I put it in the book, uh, like I think a month later, I found out they had already started making <laughs> a jukebox musical on Britney Spears. Of course. <laughs> so... So I said, I don't want I don't want this to happen again. So I, I have to find someone that they are definitely not going to make a musical of. And I said, who is so unpopular and yet so known? And I was like, well, maybe just a bunch of unknown people known for really one song. Yeah. So that's how Wonderland came along. I thought a show of all one hit wonders. Yeah. And when I had that name, I was then the theme came was of doing it in Wonderland. 
Um, and so, yeah, I made Ujima the Queen of Hearts. And it was actually a lot of fun to sort of track the, at the end of the book, for, for people who don't have the audiobook, uh, so people who've only know, read the book through audiobook, in the actual uh, hardcover copy of my book, there is a playbill in the back yeah, of the I book yeah. <laughs> for the show that has the characters and, and the one hit wonders that they sing according to whatever their character they are. So that was a lot of fun to track that. Well, I'm just going to say, knowing a lot of Lewis Carroll people, I, I know a lot of folks who would definitely come see this show. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> and I mean, I think what was, what was so fun for me about that is it, like you simultaneously created a show that, yeah, was obviously not great, but yeah. also that it showed the, eternal adaptability of Alice in Wonderland. Like, I don't think you could have done that. And and you have, you know, he's working on a show that's supposed to be an adaptation of Peter Pan. Right. That seems to not be going very well. And I think it's like, yeah, you can make Alice anything, but you yeah. can't really make Peter Pan anything, you know? And and I thought, you know, as, a, as an Alice fan, I thought that was, that was pretty cool. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so there, there are a number of inherent challenges, I think, in, in writing romance. And one of them is this. The reader wants the two main characters to get together. Yeah. We expect the two main characters to get together. But inevitably, there are other characters who, through no fault of their own, are standing in the way of that. And in this case, one of those characters is, is Kito's boyfriend, Mark. Yeah. Um, it, how do you make a character like Mark or, or or another character who's sort of standing in the way of what the reader expects and wants to happen? How do you make them still be like a real, fairly treated person and not just like an obstacle? Yeah, that's tough, right? You don't, uh, you know, I was talking to my editor about this because we're working on my second book and it, it has in the earlier drafts, uh, a true love triangle and uh i've changed it because basically she said to me that most readers do not like love triangles because they they don't like that sort of um that conflict of trying to pick uh in your head which one you want the protagonist to go with because you inevitably end up feeling really sorry for the one that they don't right so it's hard to find someone it's hard to sort of describe someone as you know, nice enough and attractive enough that the person would be with them. Like you don't want your protagonist to seem like a total fool for being with a, you know, a, a gross person. Uh, but then, but you don't want the reader to like that person enough so that, you know, they get their heart broken. So what I did with mine is that I, I was very careful with word choice and, small actions yeah. to just put a little bit here and there that are not quite flattering to you know when you kind of you know when you meet someone and they they say just a little offhand and it's sort of that red flag yeah. you know it's not it's not the majority of what they're saying but you go mm, i don't know that's i think that's what you have to do with that character you just you kind of put in these tiny little red flags that maybe you're not even conscious of as a, as a reader but you know, it, that you end up not quite liking them. Yeah. And I think, you know, without giving too much away here, that the that way you have Mark sort of, quote unquote, helping out Keto, but then we're like, is he really helping out Keto? Or is he doing this for himself or for somebody <laughs> right. else? You know, we're just, we're, we're never quite sure. And so, it, 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 like you said, it keeps us from falling in love with, with Mark. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, 
Well, I, I sometimes wonder, and you know, I think we can we can dance around details here because again, I don't want to give anything away. But what would happen to rom coms if everybody just always said what they were thinking and we had perfect <laughs> communication? You know, they would just be so short. There would be no act yeah. two or act three. You know, um, <laughs> the, the entire genre to me seems to depend on on poor communication. Yeah. But, I mean, how do you both like leverage that idea, but then also keep it keep it believable that these people would not be communicating in an open way that would allow them to avoid all the obstacles that happen in the novel. That's tough. Um, I think that in particular with romantic comedy, um, you have a little bit more leeway because it's kind of, I think in romantic comedy, you have a little bit more suspension of belief mm -hmm. where when, you know, where you're watching you know, Julia Roberts and, and Richard Gere or whatever, that you're willing to give into this fantasy that <laughs> that Julia Roberts is, is really a prostitute, you know? And so, you know, the miscommunication things that might not happen in real life, you're okay with. I think, I think it is a lot harder with people who write just romance, romance mm -hmm. or standard or, or, or just a romantic story in, in, in literature that you're not, you don't believe that people won't actually just talk and tell each other's feelings to each other. To be honest, actually, it's been one of the biggest complaints about my book, I think, because I think that my book has been marketed as a romantic comedy, and I do still believe it is a romantic comedy, but I don't think it's it's so funny, funny, funny all the way through. There are parts of it that do get a little emotional, right? So. I think the suspension of belief doesn't work as well in my book. It doesn't lend itself to, and there is a very big miscommunication in my book, right? That hinges, that happens. Uh, and it's pretty much the reason why Quito and Emmett do not talk to each other for, for 20 years. Um, and like I said, to be honest, there are some people who said, couldn't they have just picked up the phone and talked to each other? And I think that, I think all writers say, oh if, oh, if I could just go back and rewrite that section, I would try to put a little bit more into sort of why didn't they pick up the phone? I tried to explain it. I thought I did an okay yeah. job, yeah. but um, I probably could have did a little bit, done a little bit better. Um, it's hard. It's tough. Uh, as a writer, I'm inclined to say, well, they, they didn't pick up the phone. And if they, if they did, there wouldn't have been a story. There yeah. wouldn't have been a story. But, but I also think, I think with this book, because it starts in, in high school, like you see these, it's to me, it's very believable that kids in high school don't tell other oh, kids how they're feeling, especially yeah. when their feelings are complicated by things like gender identity and, and sexual preference and everything else. And, yeah. and so then when you see these characters who have fallen into that pattern in, in high school, to me, it made it believable that that pattern would, would carry on. But yeah, thank you. That's just me. You know, I thought it was, a good <laughs> I really liked it. Um, well, listen, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in, in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us some insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we'll begin. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? Um, so not a word, but a, 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 I, I use the M dash a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Like so much. I mean, if the M dash were a person, I think my husband would be jealous because it's just all over my <laughs> editor. hates it. <laughs> so yeah, the M dash. Okay. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? 
Uh, moist, especially in romance. Yeah. <laughs> Where's your favorite place to write? On my living room couch, because we live in Oak, the Oakland, sort of the Oakland Hills. So we have this amazing view of uh, mm. Oakland and San Francisco in the Bay. So where could you never write? In the kitchen because, or in a dining room that's near a kitchen because food is very distracting to me. And well, when I am with food, like that is the only thing that matters. So <laughs> I couldn't do it. What was the first book you remember? Oh, sorry, I, I skipped one. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Oh, anything with commas. I put them everywhere. Oh, my editor also, it drives her crazy. It's like, <laughs> why do you keep putting these commas here? It's like, I don't know. They look nice. <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? Um, What is that book with the... It's like you, it's the caterpillar and you open it and you can see the very little. Oh, the very hungry caterpillar. Caterpillar. Yeah. That yeah, one for yeah. kids. Yeah. yeah. But for like read reading, I think, uh, uh, the, uh, encyclopedia Brown and choose your own adventure books. I read like basically all of them. What are you reading now? So I'm reading this great memoir from Curtis Chin, who is one of the co-founders of the Asian American Writers Workshop. Uh, it's called Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. Uh, he is also, he's around my age too. He's also Asian and he's also gay. And so, so many of the experiences we had growing up were so similar. Uh, it's a great book. It's a great read. What book would you like to have written? Um, I would say The Death of Vivek Oji. Uh, by Akweke Meiji. My God, that was so um, soul shattering. I don't, I mean, in, in a beauty, and in a, it's just amazing to read a book that shatters you emotionally across a spectrum and all at the same time, just beautiful. And you, you like weep from joy and from sorrow at the same time. I don't know how people can do that, but but they did that with that book. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Oh, I I really want to write a fantasy science fiction book. And I love those genres, but I am so scared to touch that world because those people are very serious. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Oh, I, I, I've been lucky enough that this has happened to me already several times that uh, people will say, I never saw myself in a book until I read yours. Mm, wow. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Dominic Lim, whose novel All the Right Notes is available wherever books are sold. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. 
If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. The podcast doesn't usually include the comments my guests make after we've finished our official conversation, but Dominic said something so kind that I can't resist sharing it with you. I just want to say um, I've done a fair amount of podcasts this year, and what I usually do is I, I listen to a podcast just to get the rhythm of what they do. And that's it. Maybe it's not even the whole podcast. Um, I listen to so many of your episodes. Oh, thanks. I, I think what you do is just, it's really, it's its not, um, it's not, <laughs> I was going to say, it's not normal. It's not normal. It's really not. I mean, uh, every single episode is is so unique and so well-researched and uh, uh, it's so enjoyable. As the holidays approach, this not normal podcaster will be bringing you new episodes. But until then, may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.